Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Melee's Turnwheel, the series that takes a retroactive look at the Fire Emblem series chapter by chapter. I'm your host, I'm Main Melee Kirby, and today we're taking it back to chapter 2 of Fire Emblem Genealogy of the Holy War. So first of all, uh, Merry Christmas if you celebrate. I'm recording this on Christmas Eve. It's probably going to go up the day after Christmas, so I hope you had a wonderful holiday. Uh, or if you celebrate Hanukkah, I hope that you, you know, your, your past, you know, they get ended like four or five days ago at the time I'm recording this. Um, I hope that you had a wonderful holiday as well. I hope just everyone had a really good month. hope everyone ended this awful, awful year on a strong note, um, as well as can be expected. So today we're looking at chapter two, but before we get started, I wanted to take a second to go back and talk about something that I mentioned last episode that I think deserves a little bit more discussion, a little bit more attention than I gave it last time. So at, towards the end of the last episode, I talked about uh, what would happen if you recruit Deirdre after Sandima has already been defeated. And she gives a lot of exposition. I, I kind of went on about how that was the third time that you got the same exposition in that chapter. Um, one of which, one of those three times being mandatory that you have to see. And I just, you know, I, I went on a whole rant about it. But in that, I talked a little bit about how I didn't like how Sigurd was being presented with all the information and making a bad choice. And I think that, um, I mean, I don't know if anyone really took issue with that, but after thinking about it more, I kind of I kind of realized that um, I don't think I've necessarily changed my mind, but I, I've realized a, uh, a ch possible strong defense that you can give that and that is that fe4 in general is a game that seems to posit the idea that um at least in war and in, in the context of of what's going on people are punished for making poor naive decisions and i think that that is is something that is not consistently executed on but i definitely think that you could argue that it happens often enough where it's intentional and i would agree with that generally um, you know, the, a few examples, I mean, obviously there's the big one at the end of the first half of this game, uh, Sigurd makes a, a naive decision that gets him killed. Um, for a more lighthearted example, uh, I would say from the last chapter, um, Aideen trusting that Dew is just going to stop being a thief. Uh, and then like a day later she gets, you know, he steals a warp staff for her and, and she just kind of buys that it, it was, you know, he found it somewhere. I don't know. Uh, stuff like that just, it seems to, you know, it, it's, it seems to support the idea that these characters are being subverted and being thwarted for making the wrong choices. And I, I think the fact that Sigurd makes a wrong choice here and it has serious disastrous consequences, you know, you could argue that that's, that's just in line with how the rest of the game is. And I think that that is fair, but I also don't think that that is... Uh, entirely reasonable either and the reason for that is most of the of the decisions that i'm talking about including the two i just listed off they have some grounding in like logic and and character like for example a dean is very much the type to be trusting of an individual like do who maybe doesn't necessarily deserve it arvis did a lot to convince sigurd that he was on his side and then i i definitely don't think that sugar sugared I definitely don't think that Sigurd should have been so ready to trust him. But I also don't think that, you know, it was a complete shot in the dark. I think that he had a strong amount of evidence to support that decision. 
with this it feels i mean it, again it doesn't feel out of character i talked a little bit last time about how i think it's it's in line with what a normal 22 year old or, or however old Sigurd is would do but it's so blatantly irresponsible and i don't think you could argue that he doesn't believe what he's hearing because it's coming directly from deirdre like she's the one saying it to him and he doesn't seem like he doesn't say anything to imply that he doesn't believe her so i i definitely think that he knows that what he's doing is is you know he's taking a risk it's not some vague like oh the world will end if i leave this village she lays out explicitly i have within me the power to bring about the resurrection of this evil god that will destroy the world and there is a group actively hunting me to try to make that a reality and you know it's like it's you know he isn't stupid sigurd's not an idiot and i know that he's in love with her but he also just met her like a month ago <laughs> you know like it's and love at first sight is definitely like you know, it's a real trope especially in fantasy stories but at least in this game that's not the case at all i mean mechanically you have to make these people wait like three thousand years next to each other to make them fall in love with each other but even in in the narrative i mean Quan and ethlin presumably knew each other for a really long time i mean Quan and sigurd were like best friends um, so he, he probably have, has, has met Ethlin at some point, Aaron and, and Lewin, who we're going to meet later on in this chapter, they have a pretty easy way to get paired, but it's after like, well, first of all, they've known each other for years. And also it's after a shared traumatic event that kind of brings them closer together. It's not supported even in this game. The idea that love at first sight is worth throwing away everything you you care and love about or care about and love into the garbage for i don't know i i i think that it is it is true to say that fe4 is a game where bad decisions are punished and i definitely think that this is in line with that to a certain extent but i just think it takes it a step too far like if that's what they were trying to go for they should have put in the effort to make it more believable i think that maybe if they had just done if they had made it more vague, like if maybe Deirdre didn't know all the details, or even if they just took it out of the game, um, and, you know, Sigurd, like if one of your units visits the village, maybe Sigurd has some unique dialogue or something, I don't know, but yeah, I just, I, I definitely, I think that that would be a defense that um, a lot of people would make over that, so I, I wanted to, to open some more discussion and, and maybe recognize, hey, maybe I wasn't giving the game enough credit. And I don't think I was. I don't think it's as egregious as I as I was originally thinking. But I also think that it is still not particularly great writing. And I, I'm still not a fan of it. But I could understand why people might not agree with me on that. So, you know, take that as you will. Okay, so now we can open the chapter proper. Chapter 2, Crisis in Augustria. Alright, so the chapter opens up and Sigurd has conquered Verdane and he's in charge of it. He's been placed as like the governor of Verdane and Augustria is not happy about it. They think that, I, I, I remember, I seem to remember them, like this part isn't very important so I, I like the excuse for the conflict, but I'm pretty sure they were like using the fact that Granvale seems to be like lashing out as an excuse 
Like, they're like, oh, well, why stop at Verdane? Maybe they're going to come for Augustria next. And the Augustrian lords have already been kind of scummy, like we saw last chapter with, with Elliot from, from Herheim, that the Augustrian lords were, were not big on diplomacy before now, but the real nail in the coffin for, for this was uh, the king died. Uh, the king of Augustria was a nice dude, uh, and he died. And his son, Chagall, who was a warmongering idiot, took the throne and said, hey, go invade Granvale right now. And they all just did it. Now, Eldegon uh, is kind of situated between Granvale and the rest of them. So he's kind of the la- sort of the last line of defense for Granvale from these other lords. And he says, listen, I need to go talk to Chagall because I want to try to convince him to stop this. And his sister, Lachesis, who we're meeting for the first time, he, she says, no, don't do it. Chagall uh, killed his own dad. We both know this. Like, come on. That's ridiculous. Don't don't do this. He's just gonna he's just gonna hurt you or kill you. And Eldegon kind of puts a stop to that and says, hey, listen, those are just rumors. We don't know that for a fact. So don't talk about our king like that. And I'm just gonna go meet with him. So Eldegon gets there and is barely able to get out a few sentences <laughs> before Chagall throws him in jail. Chagall is a is a he's like one of the worst villains in this game, and I mean that in the sense of like he's the, the one of the easiest to hate. Um, I think that like Reptor and I mean I guess Langbolt, but Reptor is more important to the story. Reptor is probably the easiest to hate, but I think Chagall is up there for sure. Um, he throws Eldegon in the dungeon. The the reasoning just being like I mean he doesn't even give a good reason. He just says like you've been using your position as like you know my father liked you and you've been using that position to undermine his authority or undermine my authority or something like that i don't know he gives some bullshit reason and throws him in jail uh and that's that and he tells he sends word to herhein who we met last chapter to uh herhein's a place by the way just to make that clear i'm not talking about a person he he sends word to castle herhein to conquer nordian which is where eldegon's from on their way into Grand Vale, and they say, okay, sure. There's a brief little exchange here where uh, Lachesis hears about this. She kind of goes on this rant about how, I guess I guess uh, Elliot's been hitting on her, and she's not interested, uh, which is fair because Elliot's a piece of shit, but she goes on this rant about how she wishes more people were made out of the same ilk as Eldegon, who she calls Eldie, and that that's um as she says like and then if if people were then maybe someone would stand a chance to marry me and this is like the first hint we get at this whole weird dynamic between Lachesis and Eldegon that's kind of become a bit of a meme in the fandom but we'll talk more about that later I should mention actually before this um while while uh Chagall is talking Manfroy shows up and it just kind of shows that Manfroy has been manipulating him behind the scenes kind of like they did with Verdane it's not really important, but just, you know, Manfroy's still here. Manfroy's still around and doing things. He's really the only connection that, that this chapter has to the overall plot. It's pretty self-contained otherwise, um, which is weird because they dedicate two chapters to it. Like, one-third of all of Gen 1 is based on this conflict. But, yeah, I mean, there's some connection here, but it's not a lot. So, uh, then we cut to Sigurd, and Sigurd has gotten a message from Lachesis asking him to come help them. And he says yes, and let's go. Oh, and then um, Deirdre shows up and and asks Sigurd to join him on the battlefield, and he says no. But you know she kind of argues her case a little bit, and she says, 
I have a feeling that if you and I were to part, we would never find each other again, which I wrote down specifically that line because it's some good foreshadowing for the next chapter. I mean, it's very ham-fisted, but it sets the tone well. So yeah, I, I enjoyed that line. And then that's how the chapter begins. I hope I didn't forget anything. There's a lot going on at the beginning of this chapter, and I played it a while ago. Um, I started the first half of the chapter like a week ago, so, you know, it's um, some of the things aren't particularly fresh in my mind. So before we do anything else, we want to visit the arena, and we, we talked about the arena last chapter. I would like to say, actually, that just as, as, as a personal recommendation, I don't like to visit the arena uh, at the beginning of the chapter, I usually do it anyway, just by force of habit, but I think it's a bad idea a lot of the time, because eventually, unless you're like godly at combat, like Sigurd, or maybe some, maybe like Lex or something, you are not going to get through the arena first try. You're just not. So I like to go do my thing and clear out any objectives that need to be secured early, like the villages, or if there's like, you know, NPCs that got to be saved, like in this chapter, then... I try to get that out of the way first and then do the arena later when I have more time to maybe like RNG manipulate or um, get level ups, get better items. Like in this in this chapter, we get the Brave Lance, which is really helpful for Finn. So there's really no reason for Finn to do any of the arena before he gets the Brave Lance. So, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but in this chapter, you actually should do it early. And the reason for that is Holland. I know that um, some of the names have been localized officially now because of hero actually all the names have been officially localized because of heroes uh because of the choose your legends thing but i'm just like first of all it's easier for me because this is how i remember some of the names and second that's how they're listed in the patch so if i'm like looking at someone's name and i write it down as what it says in the patch then some of them might be outdated but um holland shows up and holland is kind of a nothing character uh, in the grand scheme of things, I know a lot of people find him really boring and uninteresting because he just kind of shows up and, and joins your army, but he is one of the first in an archetype that I really, I really, really like. I find it very appealing. It's the, um, the everyman archetype, just sort of the, the random guy with a mission archetype. And there have been a few of these guys. Ralph from FE5 comes to mind. Uh, I would argue maybe Brom from the Tellius games. Atlas from Echoes, and I guess Gaiden, so yeah, he was probably the first. Just guys who aren't lords, they aren't knights, they, they don't necessarily have a connection to the main lord in any way, they're just random people who want to join the war effort for their own personal reasons. And in Holland's case, that personal reason is, uh, he says that he's been, I mean, he's working in the arena, so he says he's been chasing money his whole life, and when he sees whoever it is that recruits him for me, it was Sigurd. I think for most people, it's going to be Sigurd. It becomes, it, like, it feels pointless to him. And he feels like uh, working for something and, and fighting for something bigger than himself is just what he needs to sort of revitalize his life. And that's just so cool to me. And I don't, I don't, like, I know he doesn't get a lot of dialogue. I know he's not, like, important to the story. But I just, like, I read those, the first time I played this game, I read those three or four lines and I was just in love with this guy because that's such a cool character motivation. And in any other game where you could flesh that out more, I think that would be really interesting. And I, I would love to see that. If, if this game ever gets remade, I want them to focus on that. Like, why is he stag Why does he feel so stagnant, right? Like, is this something that's been a long time coming? 
it's it's cool because you can just sort of fill in the the blanks with your own mind, um, even though the game doesn't necessarily spell it out for you. But I would like the game to spell it out for me if they ever do a remake, just because I want more people to appreciate this man because he's cool. I like him. I'm trying to cut down, by the way, on the amount of times I say cool and interesting, uh, because I said those a lot last chapter. <laughs> so I'm gonna try. I already said cool, I think, a couple times, but hopefully I don't say it too much more. As a unit, Holland is basically just male Era. You can just think of him as as the same as Era with a few tweaks. Um, instead of Astra, he has Luna, which is worse overall. It can be situationally more useful, but generally it's it's worse. He has more bulk and more strength, which makes him better at taking down enemies. But at the same time, his offense... I mean, Astra isn't like something you should always rely on, but her Era's skill growth is so good that eventually it's going to become reasonably reliable um, to the point where you can expect to proc it like every few rounds of combat at least. And then also she has an entire chapter of availability over him. Maybe not the entire chapter, but like two thirds of a chapter's worth of availability over Holland. And that's assuming that you recruit Holland right away, which you probably will. But if you don't know he's there, for instance, you might not recruit him until later on. So you know, it's uh, it's worth considering. I mean, I don't really think either of them are worth using because they're um, they're on foot unit, they're foot units, so they can't move as fast. But if you're willing to put up with one of them, then you're probably willing to put up with both of them. And if you had to pick one, I'd say Holland is the better one, but it's not by a wide margin or anything. Okay, so now that we've started playing the map proper, uh, there's a few anti-turtling distance incentives, anti-turtling incentives, turtling disincentives, whatever you want to call them. Um, the previous chapters, I mean, last chapter only really had the one village, and then Prologue had a bunch of villages. This map has a bunch of villages that you have to save, but it also has a, a reward in the form of green units that you have to keep alive, because if all three of them survive the chapter, then you get a Night Ring, which is a nice item. It gives a non-mounted unit Kanto, which is cool. I like that. It's a good item. Lachesis can sell it for money if she wants, if you don't want it on her, um, which I don't, and you'll see why in just a little bit. I don't know if it's necessarily fair to call it an uh, anti-turtling incentive, because you don't know it's there the first time, but I guess if you know it's there in subsequent playthroughs, you will at least, you know, you'll, it'll be on your mind and you'll, you'll take it into consideration then. These guys are pretty hard to keep alive if you don't know what you're doing. I mean, even if you do, like, one wrong mistake and you just, like, it's it's over. Um, basically, how these guys work is they're, they're guarding the castle at the beginning of the map. And you have, to go, you have to go fight off the guys attacking them. And if you go full tilt, full movement every turn, your highest move units will reach them just in time to stop one of them from getting just murked. I don't think... That if you get there one turn later, then the, the guy will survive. Or one, I think at least one of them is practically guaranteed to die. Unless you get really lucky with dodges. I could be wrong about that. But you pretty much have to go full tilt if you want to save these guys. And that in itself is kind of annoying. Um, I mean, I don't think it's bad game design or anything. I like, I like that it forces you to speed up. It's just an example to illustrate that they can sometimes be hard to keep alive. And the other thing that you need to keep in mind is um, the Anfony, which is a castle up north, is sending bandits to sack villages. Um, that's the other uh, anti-turtling incentive. 
Ethlyn and Deirdre have a conversation here, which is not remarkable in terms of um, dialogue. I mean, I guess I guess it uh, it is in the sense of Ethlyn really drives home the point that Sigurd is really really happy now that Deirdre is in his life, and that's cute. That's really wholesome. I lo- I like Deirdre and Sigurd's relationship. I want to make that clear. Uh, that for all my naysaying about how they ended up together, their actual dynamic is quite cute. Uh, I do like that a lot. But in terms of what you get out of the out of the conversation, Ethelyn gets her light brand, which is, I guess, more likely to be known as Leaf's light brand because it is his um, personal weapon in Fe Five. So, uh, yeah, this is where we get the the iconic light sword. And that's pretty much it. You get the you get to the first castle. I mean, it's not really the first castle because you can't capture it. Uh, it's just a green castle. And you get there, you save the green units, and you talk to Lachesis. And she and, and Sigurd have a brief exchange where he says that uh, King Asmer has approved military actions. So that's good. He's not just acting on his own on his own wishes. Um, he's he has the support of of Granville behind him. So that's good to know. And with that. Lachesis is recruited, and Lachesis is one of the most interesting characters to talk about in this whole game. Um, probably, definitely the most interesting in this episode, but in the whole game, probably. Because she is a unit of many facets. There's a lot of stuff to talk about with her. Let's start with the gameplay. Lachesis starts off as a footlocked unit who can only use swords and staves at first it seems kind of kind of lame i mean like swords are nice because they're they're light but she can't double anyway and because she doesn't have pursuit and they're weak so you'd much rather have her using something like lances or axes at that point and staves i mean she only comes with a dinky heel staff so she can't even do that much in terms of that so you might think well she's kind of worthless then right i mean being footlocked alone in this game is a death sentence even if you have great combat like era and holland so why why is she worth talking about well the answer is that she promotes onto a mount and you know just like azel but unlike azel she doesn't promote into mage knight she doesn't promote into paladin she doesn't even promote into um what was it knight lord which is what sigurd is no she promotes to master knight which is bar none the best class in the game in a vacuum taking out factors like you know how difficult it is to get it and the availability of it, you know, just just straight up and down looking at stats across the board. Master Knight is the best class in the game. It has insane promotion bonuses. It's like plus seven strength and skill, plus four speed or plus five speed, something like that. She gets pursuit as a class skill when she promotes. It's ridiculous. But the best part probably is the weapon ranks. Master Knight has a rank in Every weapon type in the game, all, so all you know, swords, axes, lances, all that, um, all types of magic, staves. The only exceptions are light magic, which she has a C in, and dark magic, which she doesn't have a rank in at all because no playable character can use dark magic in this game. So she has insane stats when she promotes. Now, I want to I want to make this clear. I don't want to f- seem like I'm I'm a broken record here, but she is one of the only characters that reaches Sigurd levels of combat in Gen 1 on a mount. Lewin gets his holy weapon later. That puts him probably even higher than both of them, but um, obviously he's footlocked, so that makes it hard. 
to get him into the action. Lacessis is the only one that can even compete with Sigurd in terms of how much combat they're they're able to see on enemy phase. And obviously, I don't think Lacessis is better than Sigurd overall. Not even just the availability gap, but just the huge lead that Sigurd has. The fact that Sigurd requires no investment to be absolutely bonkers, other than like talking to Arvis, I guess. So maybe that wastes a turn. I don't know, but. Yeah, Lachesis eventually gets good enough to compete with Sigurd, and that is nuts. There's a few elements of this chapter that make it a little bit easier to train her. For one thing, she joins with the Miracle Sword, which if you rig it right, you can basically... I don't want to get too far into it because Miracle works weird, but basically, the the lower HP you're at, the more your avoid goes up, and with certain HP values, you can rig it so that your avoid goes up more than the hit than the enemy has on you in the first place. So in other words, if an enemy has 60 hit and you get 70 avoid from Miracle, you can make it so that that enemy just has no chance to hit you whatsoever, which allows for really easy arena manipulation. It takes a while and you have to spend some turns setting it up so that, you know, it's slow. But if you're playing slow, then she's, you know, she's really easy to get going. Um, I mean, I guess that's true of anyone. And there's the whole argument of like, well, you shouldn't argue grinding because if you grind, then everyone's good. But I think that she undeniably has the greatest uh, return on your investment of going slow and setting up kills. The other thing that makes her a little bit easier to use is the fact that she uses stabs. And staves effectively give her her own experience pool. Because normally when you want to train up a unit like, say, Azel, you have to give him kills. You have to feed him experience by fighting enemies. Uh, in the arena, sure, but then also on the field if you want to accomplish anything. Now, there are a lot of units that want that experience more. And there's also a lot of units that are just, you know, you can get the kills more easily with them. So, like, why would I set up this kill so that... that Azel can get it. Um, Azel's probably a bad example because he can actually chunk pretty well. But let's use Lachesis as an example. Imagine Lachesis couldn't use stabs and she can only use swords and she does so little damage and just can't even get into combat. But let's say by some miracle you set up a kill for Lachesis and you can give that kill to Lachesis or you could give it to someone who's going to make better use of it like, um, like Finn or... Uh, you know, eventually we'll get Aaron, who's pretty, pretty solid. Um, Alec or Noish or Beowulf, if you're training any of them. Or even if you want to, I mean, I think that, that Lachesis is better than Azel overall, but in this hypothetical where she can't use, which she can't use um, staves, a big part of ut her your utility is taken away. So Azel would arguably be better in that context because he can't, um, he can attack from range, he does more damage because enemy res is usually pretty low, and he also promotes onto a mount. So, like, overall, there's not really a whole lot of reasons to try to feed kills to Lachesis, but with the fact that she can use staves, you don't have to. You can have her use return, she can use the return staff, you can have her heal people. I don't think she can use mend, although I could be wrong about that. I know she definitely can't use warp. And then the other, the final thing that makes her passable and and relatively okay to train is um the paragon band you get the paragon band in this chapter it's pretty later on it's like halfway through 
but it's still nice. And Lakesis makes good use out of it because, again, she has one of the highest returns on investment in this whole game. Although you could argue that you'd want to give it to someone who's already good, but could stand to be a little bit better. Again, maybe like Noish or Alec or Finn. Um, maybe Beowulf, although Beowulf's already pretty good. So Anyway, uh, that's, you know, that's really all I have to say. I've already talked so much about her from a gameplay perspective, uh, but I really wanted to drive home the fact that she's, she's a very fascinating unit that I enjoy talking about. Character-wise, she's kind of lame. <laughs> um, I know, I know, I know one Lakesa stand in particular that might be upset to hear me say that, but, um, she started the archetype of bratty, like, noble healer. They're usually healers. Not always, I guess. And they're usually blonde. Again, not always. But um, Sarah from FE7, Clarine from FE6, Maribel from FE13, Awakening, and then also, um, again, she's not a healer, but I would argue Constance from Three Houses fits under this archetype. So she started that, and she has a lot less depth than any of those characters. I don't know much about Clarine or Constance. But I know Sarah and Marybelle are two of my favorite characters in the series because they have a lot more to them than that archetype. Lachesis doesn't really. I mean, she kind of does, but it's mostly just being, uh, you know, uh, being bratty and being kind of uh, stuck up and rude. And it's funny. She has some really funny dialogue with uh, with uh, Chagall, particularly at the end of this chapter. But I don't really care much for her outside of that. Once you recruit Lachesis, Dew can have a conversation with her that gives her the Thief Sword, which has low hit. It's not very good might, but it basically, you know, when you hit someone with it, you steal their gold, just like Dew does. So, uh, if you don't like Dew, if you don't like training Dew, um, I mean, obviously, Dew's the best recipient for, for, you know, stealing gold from enemies because he can give it to anyone. But uh, if you have someone maybe even married to Dew who has access to swords, maybe you could do something with that. I don't know. So now we have to go capture Herrhein, and Herrhein is guarded by two bosses, Philip and Bordeaux, I think is his name, and both of them are the first introduction to, or I guess just introduction to a very irksome design decision in FE4, which is that the majority of the bosses from this point onward, I would say about 75% of them, are going to be generals or barons or sometimes you know other classes that have that have similar names but not identical names and they are going to have a skill called pavice pavis great shield whatever you want to call it and in later games this is this is a skill that comes back in later games and and in more modern times it has a chance to have certain types of damage i think in 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 some games, it's all types of damage. In um, in later games, it's maybe uh, only like from like swords or lances and stuff like that. Yeah, in this game, it doesn't work like that. When it goes off, it just completely blocks all damage. And it has, I don't know what the proc rates are on most enemies, but it's high enough to be annoying, I can tell you that much. I actually got really lucky. I only got it a couple times in this chapter, which is crazy, but... At least only a couple times in contexts where it mattered and made a difference. So I got super lucky with that. But I don't think that luck will hold through because a lot of them are... A lot of bosses are going to be... At least a lot of bosses guarding castles. I should say 75% of bosses guarding castles are going to have that. If not more. But there will still be non-general bosses just going around the overworld and stuff like that. 
And this is annoying because in order to save those villages that I was talking about earlier, we need to capture this castle. Not only are the enemies that are attacking the villages not red, so we can't even fight them if we wanted to, but we also get two units who are in a much better position to help um, as soon as we capture Herheim. So, But eventually you'll get through. It's, it's obnoxious. There are ballista. Uh, there are a lot of enemies. Uh, it's, it's a rough time. But eventually you'll get through and you will make it to Herheim. You'll capture it. And some story happens. Basically, Oifi just asks Sigurd if, hey, are we going to pull out now that we've captured Herhein and the, the immediate danger is gone? And Sigurd basically says, well, uh, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think so, though, because Eldegon's still in jail. And, you know, like, this isn't going to stop. And, and also, there are citizens in danger that we got to help. So we're just going to stay here and, and, and continue to deal with it. This is an important decision, uh, and it has long-term consequences. If Sigurd had just pulled out here, I mean, I don't think it, things would have gone better, but it would have been um, a very different path. Probably equally as bad, maybe worse, but a lot of things would have been different. At this point, Anthony becomes our enemy officially, and we can fight the bandits. And on that note, we get two new characters, Lewin and Sylvia. Uh, Sylvia, let's start with Sylvia. Sylvia is a dancer who... Uh, it kind of works, if you've ever played Path of Radiance or Radiant Dawn, um, it works like Transformed Raisin or Raphael in that uh, she she dances for four units at once, one on each adjacent square, and that can be really effective. She's footlocked, so um, it's hard to get her to the main action sometimes. I actually like to give her the leg ring, which is an item we'll get later that uh, boosts her movement. I know, like, the, the optimal strat is to give it to, to Selif, or give it to Sigurd so that Selif can inherit it, but theoretically, there's nothing stopping you from just giving it to Sylvia and then giving it to Sigurd at the very end of Chapter 5 to pass it down to Selif, um, and then he can give it to Lean or Layla uh, at the, at, in, in Gen 2. So that's something you can do. But honestly, I don't even like to bother. I mean, I just I just give Selif the Paragon Band, and he's like, fine, I don't, I don't even care. Um... Like, I can, I can live with, without the, the super high movement all the time. Now, um, and the, the consequence of that is that, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Sylvia, there we go, becomes a pretty good unit. And, I mean, she's already a really good unit just by merit of dancing, but this brings her from, like, good to really, really, really good. Most dancers in Fire Emblem are amazing because you can just think of them as, Hey, you know, you know, my best character, you know, like Xander or Pala or um, uh, Seth, let's just have them move again. Let's just have two of them in the same turn, basically. And I mean, it doesn't work like that exactly, but essentially that's what it is. And Sylvia can theoretically do that for four characters. And with Kanto in this game being, you know, something you can do even after attacking, it's really easy to set up dances for her. And it's just, it's, it's really good. I, again, I like to give her the leg ring, and I think that that makes her a lot better. But I think that even without it, she's still a fantastic unit. So just kind of do what you want, what your, whatever your preference is. As a character, she's funny, and um, I like a lot of her dialogue. She's kind of, she actually reminds me a lot of Sarah from FE7. I know I kind of said the Kessis was that, but I think that, um, I think that, if anything, Sarah maybe combines elements from both of those characters. So, you know, she's very, uh, 
silly and very entitled and privileged and uh, uh whereas Lachesis is kind of more just rude <laughs> and very no nonsense and she just you know she says what's on her mind and everyone else be damned so she's kind of like that Lewin is one of my favorite characters in this game I actually uh my very first ever Dungeons and Dragons character was pretty much based entirely on Lewin there were some minor differences but for the most part it was just Lewin as a D&D character and he was a ton of fun um you know I, I I won't go on too much about this because it's a huge tangent but bards are my favorite class in D&D 5e and I've only ever played one so that should show you how much fun I had playing Lewin in Dungeons and Dragons now as a character he's I mean, there's not really a whole lot to him now. He's very mysterious and has a fun, like, atmosphere about him. We do find out later in this chapter that he is the Prince of Salice, which is a, a, a country that we have not been to yet and has had really no relevance in the story whatsoever, but he's the prince there, and that's a big deal. It has big implications on stuff that's going to happen later, but for the most part, in this chapter, not all that uh, interesting of a character, and we can... um. We'll talk more about him in chapter four because that's when he sort of gets his moment to shine. But for right now, just know that he's fun and and has a has a, a cool demeanor about him that I, I enjoyed. As a unit, he's bad. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I know I'm I know there are Lewin stands out there. I'm a huge Lewin stan, uh, but he doesn't get Forsetti until much later, and even when he does, he's still a footlocked unit. And unlike Azel. He never promotes onto a mount, and I know, I know that, um, I know I must sound like a broken record here with all the oh they're on, they're on foot, they're on foot, they're not mounted, but it's really just such a huge deal in this game because it's it's the difference of it like mounted units take twice like half the time to get everywhere, which is significant because the maps in this game are so big. This map in particular, if you're not a mounted unit. Get the hell out of here. I don't want you. You're useless to me because there's so much running around in this map. And in later games, I'm going to give you a more nuanced perspective. I do think that mounted units are in general the best units in Fire Emblem. But there are plenty of opportunities for non-mounted units to do things. Like FE7. Uh, Oswin is hugely important in that game if you're playing casually. Um, you know, stuff like that. And... This game, I just think, is sort of the exception where even if you're playing casually, mounted units are just way, 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 way better. Um, whereas normally, I think that if you're playing casually, they're better, but not by like a huge margin. Obviously, if you're playing efficiently, then they're the best by a landslide. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm talking mostly from a casual perspective because I think most people play Fire Emblem casually. But he has a depth. And he procs it a lot because his speed is so high and his speed growth is enormous. So he'll be procing Adept a lot. And as of right now, these two are the only ones who are in a position to do anything about our little bandit problem. So, you know, they're they're worth using for this for this little bit at least. So this is where we meet Erin for the first time. Erin, I don't think we know why she's here yet, but basically Erin uh, shows up and stops by uh, the... I think maybe they say they're looking for, for the prince. I don't know. But um, they stop by Augusty Castle. She stops by Augusty Castle 
And that's really all we see of her. It's just a brief little, brief little cameo for someone we're going to meet later. After capturing Herrhein, we have a conversation between Finn and Quan, in which Quan gives Finn the Brave Lance, which is, again, kind of reminiscent of, of Deirdre and Ethel's conversation from earlier in this chapter. The Brave Lance is Finn's signature weapon in the next game, so it's very important to him. Quan just kind of says some generic stuff about how, um, you know, how much Finn means to him. And he, he calls Finn his most promising young knight and says that you are our future. And I think that really speaks volumes to how much Quan cares about Finn um, and how much Finn, you know, how, how good of a knight Finn really is to earn that much loyalty and respect from his, uh, his lord. And I think, I just think Finn's such a cool character. A lot of it is is from unspoken stuff, but that's you know that's something that we that we will address mostly in Gen two, and maybe in Thracia. So it's at this point that I did some arena grinding, and um, oh wait no was I arena grinding? I don't remember. I have written in my notes arena RNG burning, and I don't remember why. Oh yeah, okay okay. Here's what it, here's what it was. I was trying to rescue um, the villages. And I was a little bit slow to capture Herheim, so in order to save the villages, I needed Lewin to proc Adept. I just needed it to happen. And in order to do that, um, I mean, obviously he has like a like a 30-some-odd percent chance to activate it, but that's not always going to happen. It's not always reliable. So what you can do is you can save at the beginning of the turn like it prompts you to do. You can, do, you can fight um, the enemy to see if you get the Adept proc, if you don't, you can reload the save, and if someone is in a position where they can fight in the arena, for me it was Deirdre because I left her behind in the main castle after her impassioned plea to not be left behind in the castle, I left her behind anyway, um, and she fought in the arena a little bit, and the arena burns random numbers. Uh, obviously, everything in Fire Emblem is based on a random number, and say that, you know, the, the, the game has random numbers queued up so say the next number is 40 and because of the way the system works if it if it uses that 40 on the adept roll to see if i get adept or not then i will not get adept because 40 will not you know it's not low enough to trigger that happening but if i go fight in the arena it will instead use that 40 on to see if Deidre hits or something like that it doesn't matter if she hits or not because she doesn't die in the arena so you can just fight as much as she wants over and over and over again. Um, so it uses that 40, and then the next number might be 20 or something, which is enough to get an adept, an adept proc. So that's how that works, and you might see me employ that strategy a few times in this game. Uh, in, this in this instance, I needed to do it like four times before I got the adept proc for some reason. Um, yeah, I was getting pretty bad luck with that, but eventually I did it. And I got all the villages. I didn't actually visit any of them yet. I'm going to do that later. Oh, boy. Okay, so <laughs> there's an event on this map. And it's probably easiest to get it now because now you can just warp around. Now that you've captured Herrhein, Herrhein's the closest, ca closest castle to where this event takes place. What you need to do is you need to get Arden to a very specific spot on the map. Arden, if you remember, is our armor knight, all the way back from Prologue, who is terrible in every way. I have not used him. I have not fed him a single kill. I don't even think I've used him in the arena at all. But I had to drag his ass 
from the home castle all the way up to Herhein. Again, you can just warp. Um, but I, I dragged his ass because it's part of it's part of the FE4 experience, in my opinion, is dragging Arden across the world to get this goddamn event. If you stop him on this beach near Herhein, you will get an event where he he kind of bemoans to himself about how man, if only I was like Alec and I could attack twice, I would have all the ladies, I would get a lot of respect, and I'd be super cool, you know, like, he just goes on that rant, and eventually he finds a ring on the ground that, um, gives him the power of pursuit, and this is one of the most famous events in FE4, just because of how funny it is. Arden is such a meme, and you can tell that the developers really had a thing for him for some reason, and I don't know why, but they just make him the butt of all these jokes, and, and they put him in such a fun positions. I don't know. There was there was clearly some kind of inside jokes going on, and even to this day, you know, you look at at Arden in, like, Heroes, or Arden in, um, in like, the Cypher art, and you can tell that there's, there's some people out there who really, really like Arden, and I do too. I think Arden's a, a really fun and and uh and endearing character and i like him a lot but the pursuit ring let's talk about that because that's way more important um the pursuit ring is one of the best most valuable items in the game uh as the name implies it gives someone who doesn't already have it pursuit which is the skill in this game that allows you to attack twice in most fire emblem games you can just do that by default but in this game no you need pursuit and most people don't have pursuit at the start so the pursuit ring is really nice to have it's expensive, but you can transfer it around. Uh, a fun strat is to just keep it on Arden if you're using Arden, and now he can double some things, probably. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he can't. Moving on. Oh, and then the other thing you get uh, after this, Anthony sends down a group of mercenaries and um, gives you the Paragon Band. I actually forgot to write down to talk about Beowulf, but we'll talk about Beowulf in just a second. Um, because he's in this mercenary group, but also in this mercenary group is the, is a boss who drops the Paragon Band. And the Paragon Band, I already talked about, it gives someone Paragon, which is one of the other most valuable skills in this game. It doubles experience gain. I don't think it stacks with, like, actual Paragon. Like, I don't think if you give Lex the Paragon Band, he gets quadruple EXP. I could be wrong about that, but I, I, I do not think that that is true. Anyway, so Beowulf. Beowulf is in this army as well. And he, there's a little brief introduction to him earlier where he just says that he's he's this close to walking off the job is what he says. So that's sort of your hint that you can recruit him. And the way you do it is by just flat out paying him 10,000 gold, which is uh, interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, Beowulf and Lachesis later on. But uh, I think it's telling that Lachesis joins with exactly 10,000 gold, exactly enough needed to recruit Beowulf. And I think, I mean, it might just be a coincidence, but I actually don't think it is. I think the game wants you to recruit him with her, or at least hints that it's, you know, a strong possibility. They also have a lover, a lover conversation later, which I'll talk about. After you've cleared out all the enemies and you approach, uh, Her uh not Herhine, Anthony, uh, at this point, Lewin and Sylvia are probably done saving all the villages. And Lewin has a brief conversation with Sigurd where he basically just says, hey, if you cared about what you were doing, you would pull out your armies. And Sigurd says, you know what? You're right. I'm going to do that right now. And, and Lewin's like, actually, uh, I was just being a dick. Uh, that would be terrible. You shouldn't do that. Uh, I was just trying to fuck with you. And he, Sigurd gets really flustered. Uh, like, like Lewin doesn't actually say that, right? But he, it's kind of implied. Um, and 
you know, Sigurd's kind of get kind of gets flustered because he doesn't really know what to do. Like, should he pull out? Should he not pull out? Like, what is he? What is this kid trying to say? But it's it's a fun it's a fun conversation. I I like it a lot, and it characterizes both of them very well. It shows that Sigurd's like really uncomfortable with what he's doing here. Like, he's he's definitely um wants to get his army out of here. He doesn't think he's he's accomplishing anything. And and as soon as, as soon as Lewin uh, hints that he's hurting anyone in his in his campaign. He just says, all right, yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think it's time to leave. Uh, and Lewin has to convince him that, no, actually, Chagall would probably just make things worse for this people anyway. And uh, at this point, before capturing, um, I mean, I didn't do this before capturing before capturing Anthony, but I made the decision before capturing Anthony. Uh, Noish is going to get the villages because I really want him to get some good items. I want him to get that, um, I want him to get that pursuit band. I also would kind of like him to get the paragon band, although that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more, uh, more lukewarm on that. This is at this point, by the way, I didn't write this down, but I, I would like to, to paint a clear picture of what's going on here. I have been at this point, I've decided to train Lachesis up from nothing. I've given her the paragon band. She's been arena grinding, she's been abusing with her miracle sword, and she's getting up there in levels. I've sold her the return staff so she can return spam. Um, she's going off, and I actually end up getting her to chapter 20, or level 20 in this chapter, <laughs> which is insane, and requires you to play very, very slowly. I don't recommend that anyone do this, um, but it can be a lot of fun if you're like me and you just want to see numbers go up. And, uh, I mean, to, for what it's worth, if you're, if you're willing to put in the time, she makes the next few chapters a breeze, probably. I mean, I don't know, but, you know, we'll see, but I'm pretty sure she does. Um, so that might end up saving me more time overall, so I don't know. So before I talk about what happens next, the timeline here is a little weird because I got these as I was fighting against the next castle, but I'll talk about them here because theoretically you could just get them all right now. These are, these are all the village, the interesting village conversations. First of all, you get one that gives you the bargain band, which is nice. That gives you bargain, which halves the price of all items at shops. Pretty nice. Uh, and then there's one that gives you an armor slayer, which is just the kind of m mediocre weapon. I mean, we do fight a lot of armor knights, so I guess that's nice. But I don't think it's going to come in super handy. I could be wrong, though. I think there's a bunch next chapter, so maybe maybe it'll get a chance to shine. There are a lot of general bosses, like I said, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm underselling it. Now that I'm thinking about it, could actually be pretty useful. But not, neither of those conversations, or neither of those villages had interesting dialogue. So these are the, um, the four that I made note of as having anything interesting to say. One of them talks about how there are essentially witch hunts, uh, that people conduct in the big cities to uh, kill anyone who might have lop-tier blood in their veins. It's interesting because a lot, most of the time, and this guy says as much, the people are innocent. And that's, you know, like like witch hunting, obviously. All the people in, in the witch burnings were innocent uh, because witches are not real, but it's sort of a parallel to that in, in like, they're just kind of fear-mongering and, um, and hate-mongering. And it's it's paints the people of of I don't remember which cities he specifically says, but basically the big the big uh, cities in the area. I think the capital he mentions. They're they're basically killing people for no reason, just to put the heart the fear of God, uh, in for lack of a better term, into the hearts of the citizens. 
and just harbor that intense hatred against the Laptir Empire. Again, pretty justified. They did kill a lot of people, but at this point, that was a long time ago, and someone who has Laptir blood in their veins is obviously not personally responsible for that, so, you know, I, I don't think that's all that necessary, but the actual members of the Laptir Empire who are working to reestablish that order obviously are not you know, I, th I don't think that they, um, I mean, maybe burning at the stake is a little bit too harsh of a way to go, but um, I don't think they deserve much uh, in the way of sympathy. There's some Crusader lore about, uh, I guess he talks about Eldegon and how he has Mistletane, which is one of the, the holy relics. And he also, he compares it to Tyrfing, which is um, Sigurd's holy relic. He doesn't have it now, but uh, it's his family's holy relic. And the um, Balmung, which is the holy weapon of isaac he talks about those and says that they're the three strongest um uh, blades in creation so it's just it's just some some world building there's a funny village here where um one of the one it's like a lady who talks about a rumor that she that she's spreading uh that eldegon and lachesis are like in love with each other despite being siblings and that's kind of like contributes to a meme that the fandom has about these two um and in later games actually it comes back with like erica and ephraim and stuff like that this this fascination that the fan base has with like weird incestuous undertones in this series and and to be fair to to the people who talk about it with this game definitely reasonable because there is there is actual real incest you can do in this game which is pretty fucked up but also um like the like obviously this sibling incest is just talked about in rumors but some of the stuff that Lakesa says definitely implies that if nothing else she has some weird feelings about him uh Eldegon seems pretty like oblivious to the whole thing or is just not giving it any attention which is good yeah it's just it, this is kind of where both her conversation at the beginning of this chapter and this village kind of contribute to that perception of her I guess and then finally, uh, again, I gotta understand the timeline here. Uh, I got this village after fighting the next castle, but he warns you about the sleep staff that um, that the next boss has on him. And God, I really wish I had read this before because I forgot about the sleep staff and that had some problems. But anyway, uh, you capture Anthony and... Some people show up, some like uh, some Granville nobles or whatever. They show up and they, they talk to Sigurd a little bit about some stuff that's going on. They say that there are some rumors kind of going around that Sigurd is planning with his dad to overthrow the throne of Granville. And Sigurd's like, that's absolutely ri ridiculous. Who would say such a thing? And the guy says, well, it's uh, it's Reptor and Langbalt. And Sigurd says, damn, I knew they had a, a grudge against my father, but I didn't think they would take it this far. And uh, the guy says, yeah. They're probably just threatened by him, which is true. Sigurd asks about the war in Isaac and if there's an end in sight. And uh, he says, yes, actually, uh, the, the prince and your dad are going to be back any day now, it seems like. And he says, oh, that's awesome. They talk about how if Kurth had died, his bloodline would have ended because he didn't have any children. He never had a, a wife. Um, but uh, this guy does spread some some gossip about how he did, in fact, sleep with a Duchess of Velthomer, which is where uh, Arvis is from, and her name was Sijin. 
or no, sorry, sorry, sorry. He um, doesn't name drop Sijin right away. He talks about this, and in my head I was thinking, well, if you remember the stories from last chapter, then you might be inclined to think, oh, I bet he's talking about Sijin. So I bet that the son that he's talking about is Arvis, because Manfor last chapter, remember, said, hey, I have Sijin's son. We're just looking for Sijin's daughter, which is Deirdre. So the game never outright says it last chapter, but with this, you might think, oh, okay, well, it's probably Arvis then, and that gives you some hints about what's going on. Then the game ruins all of it and says, oh, her name was Sijin, and then, and then, um, uh, what's his face? Sigurd says, oh, so that's Lord Arvis's mother? And it's like, man, I know that it's not supposed to be a mystery. They say it, like, next castle anyway. They spell it out even more explicitly. But, yeah, it's, um, it's pretty bad. <laughs> um, uh, I think you can actually even check Arvis's Holy Blood in the first map, and you can confirm this for yourself. It's like they put in so many little details that make you think, oh, they're going to try to make this subtle. They're going to try to make this a mystery. But no, they just completely spell it out for you. And I think it would be so much more interesting if they didn't. But that's just me. And then at this point, uh, Chagall is talking to Aaron, and Aaron says, hey, um, we're looking for Lewin. Do you know where he is? That's the only reason I'm here is because you said you knew where he was. And Chagall says, oh yeah, he's being held captive by Sigurd's army. Go fight him. And Aaron says, okay. Um, because she's apparently dumb. And yeah, so there's a, it takes a few, she heads towards like your starting castle. And so you can have Lewin go back to the starting castle. You're going to have to return him, basically, because there's no way for him to get back that fast unless you wait forever uh, to get to um, to capture Anthony. Now, at this point, I have had my foot units ready to go because this is one of the only times they can be useful in this chapter. Essentially, the structure is that, um, you know, it kind of you go from your starting castle and then it branches off into a Y. And the, the top half of the Y goes straight up. And then the, the left half of the Y goes kind of to the left and then straight up. And you need to go to that second path first. And you go all the way up. And then what has to happen is that you capture this castle and then you run all the way back down to get to that split and then go back up again. Which is obnoxious. I don't value my time very much in case you couldn't tell by the fact that I'm doing this podcast. But even I have to draw the line somewhere. Last chapter was towing the line with the spirit forest. It was towing that line real hard. And this chapter fucking pole vaults over it. It is absurd and tedious. And I just really don't like it. Um, There are some ways you can mitigate it. Probably take longer in terms of like both turn count and actual real world time. But what I elected to do is I, as a way to grind up Lachesis, first of all, I returned everyone to the home castle and then had Aideen warp them all to um, to Herhine, which is not super close, but is closer than either Anthony or the home castle to where they need to be. So it, it took longer, but it it did it did bear fruit. I did get a get a really high level Lachesis out of it. This is how she got to level twenty, um, and I was able to promote her right away, which is really fun. But anyway, uh, I've had my foot units ready to go because while while the mounted units run down to to you know stop this from happening, or to, sorry, while the mounted units run down to capture the next castle, uh, the foot units have been here the whole time, so they can do something about it, right? Well, let me tell you a little story. Um, I forgot that the boss of this chapter had a sleep staff, which is 
status staves in this game are really, really broken because how they work is that unlike in later games where they have a certain percentage chance to hit you and the higher your resistance was, the lower the chance was, in this game, if their magic is higher than your resistance, you just get hit. There's no two ways about it. You are going to get hit by the staff and put to sleep. And in, unlike in later games, it doesn't actually hurt your avoid at all, but it means you can't move and you can't, and there's no rescue in this game, so no one can get you out of there. So what ended up happening was I was jumped by these, um, by the sleep staff because I forgot it was there and Aira got put to sleep. There's also Ballista that show up and are able to attack your units from long range. So, no, there's really nothing I could do. I'd auto-saved my way into a corner at this point. This is something that I that I have a bad habit of doing, is that I don't save outside of, of auto-saving. And so when things go badly, I either have the option to reload the past turn, which, like, that's not helpful to me because I'm already in a shitty situation, or I can restart the whole goddamn map. And obviously, I wasn't going to restart the whole goddamn map. So I did a little looking into it. And the person who got put to sleep was Aira. So I was like, okay, well, in this game, when units die, they die forever. But there is a way to get lost units back. And there's a staff called the Valkyrie Staff, which we get next chapter. And it can bring dead units back to life. So I was like, okay, well, what if I do that? I looked into it, you don't lose love points, so Noish will still have the same amount of love points with her, and I can still get them to, to get married. Uh, she can. St I'm pretty sure she can even still get the Brave Sword, although it's going to be pretty late into the map, so it's not going to, like, normally you get the Brave Sword at the beginning of the map, but unfortunately it'll have to be towards the end for me because we don't get the Valkyrie staff until pretty late in the map. So I decided to just let Aira die. I mean, it was it was either that or I just reset over and over and over again until I eventually got the luck I needed which is just not I didn't have any healers nearby I didn't have at this point you don't even have access to a physics staff you don't have a way to return her to the home castle unless uh someone with the return staff is nearby which I did not have there was just really no way out of it other than just rigging until I got super super lucky so I decided to just let Aira die and she will be back don't worry she'll come back next chapter but alas she has perished um while i was dealing with this aaron comes down to evans and at this point lewin's been back there for a while and he talks to aaron and when he does you get some some info about lewin you find out that he's the prince of Solis. this is where you find that out and you find out that he ran two ran away two years ago he's been away from home for two years which is a while the reason he cites is that if he went back, there'd be a civil war because his uncles want the throne really badly. And instead of fighting them over it and causing a civil war, he just said, all right, you can have it. I'm out of here. And he just left. He said he likes being on the road and being free. Um, and he doesn't like, you know, being restricted in that way. And Aaron obviously puts him down on this and says, no, listen, you are, you have major whole city blood or for city blood. And that is... The only, the only person who can rule over Salise is someone with major Forseti blood. You know this. That's just the way things are. And they kind of bicker about it for a little bit. Nothing really is accomplished. I think he agrees to, like, go back home at the very least and, and just to, you know, see that everything's going okay. Um, so they agree to that. And, yeah. And Aaron decides to join Sigurd's army to keep him safe. Aaron as a character is kind of... 
I mean, I, I don't want to say that she's boring. I think that she she's a very... She reminds me of Finn in a way. But I think that she's like... She has some confidence issues and is kind of unsure of herself. Um, but she's very, very loyal to her country. In this case, Selyse. And she wants to keep Luin safe. And those are her character traits. Uh, next chapter... And then, sorry, not next chapter. Um, in chapter 4, we find out more information on her. And some events happen that characterize her a little bit so that's gonna be cool but for right now that's really all she has to her name is just being a loyal knight who has some confidence issues as a unit you know normally flying units are so good in fire emblem and they are good in this game too don't get me wrong uh, they're not footlocks <laughs> which is you know that's good but roads in this game uh, are, are a terrain type that i don't think any other game has ever had where they cost basically negative movement in a way um most tiles cost one movement to go over like plain tiles cost one movement so if a unit has one movement or sorry if a, if a unit has eight movement and they're moving only over plain tiles they will um they'll move eight tiles some tiles like forests will cost more than one movement so in some games they cost two so a five movement unit is able to move one for every plane, but then if they get to a forest, they have to spend two of their movement points, which, you know, sometimes they might not be able to do. Roads in this game actually cost less than than one, I think. I don't know exactly how it works out. I think it costs like half a movement. No, it's not. It's like, like two thirds of a movement point or something like that. Regardless, uh, if you are on a road, you can actually travel further than your movement score. Which, I don't know exactly how that works, but whatever. Flyers do not get this benefit. Which means that if you're traveling long distances on a road, then, you know, Sigurd and Alec Neusch, Beowulf, Lex, all those guys are going to get really far ahead because they can take advantage of the uh, the move that the roads give them. Whereas, you know, she, what's her, uh, Aaron is going to have high movement just by merit of being a Pegasus Knight, but she can't get that movement bonus from the roads so in in the long term like if you're if you're moving from point a to point b she's gonna fall behind pretty quickly but she can have some usefulness she can fly over mountains and uh forests pretty easily uh, she's really good if you don't want noise to get the villages like i did she's a pretty good recipient of some of that money if you don't want to have do go around and do it and take forever because you can just fly over the forests and and it takes like five turns and she's done she doesn't have super good combat. She can use swords and lances, and she comes with a slim lance, which is nice. She's actually one of the best answers you have to dealing with sword units right now. For the most part, she's not super great at it. She's kind of frail, uh, and she doesn't do a lot of damage. An interesting uh, interesting thing you can do with Pegasus Knights is that eventually they will, um, they'll promote, and they'll get access to staffs, and she can be a flying staff bot, which is kind of cool. I realize I haven't been talking about the kids, by the way. I'm going to talk about them at the end and kind of condense it all into one part so that if you're not interested, you can skip it or whatever. I don't know. Um, but I just want to talk about the Gen 1 units right now. Beowulf. Uh, oh, shit. I never talked about Beowulf. Man, I'm just a mess today, aren't I? All right. Well, I did this with Jamp last time. There's always got to be one. Beowulf is uh, a mercenary, and his whole deal is that he is boring <laughs> yeah i mean there's not really there's nothing to his character really he feels like you know as a mercenary he's kind of worth less than some of the other people he's traveling with i don't think he ever explicitly says that but 
Uh, that's kind of the vibe I get from him a lot of the time. But outside of that, there's really nothing to his character that I remember, at least. Gameplay-wise, he's like Noish and Alec, except without the ability to use lances, but with way better stats. And he has Pursuit, and um, joins with a better weapon. So, uh, I mean, Alec has Pursuit, but Noish does not, and then uh, Alec's offenses are kind of bad, so he can't really get a lot of kills. Beowulf, Beowulf also doesn't have super great offense, but it's like he can two-round KO most enemies, whereas, you know, Alec would struggle with that. The reason I remembered Beowulf just now is because he and Lakesses have a conversation where they get love points. I think, oh yeah, and she gives uh, she gives him, or he gives her, like, some stat boosts. It's like strength, skill, and defense or something like that. He talks about how Eldegon and Beowulf actually go way back, and that uh, he specifically asked her, or asked him, to keep an eye on her. I don't know why he was fighting in a mercenary army against her, if that was the case, but it was a possibility uh, that, uh, you know, maybe he just... Well, I could just be lying. I don't know if this is ever corroborated as true. But yeah, I mean, that's just kind of like one of those weird gameplay idiosyncrasies, like how Mathis in Shadow Dragon has a conversation where he's like, man, if only I could see uh, Lena one last time, and then he just stabs Lena in the face, you know, stuff like that. At first, when she's when Beowulf's like talking to her, Lachesis has like this big attitude problem, and, you know, like she does with everyone. As soon as he mentions that Eldegon and him are buddies, and that he asked her, or asked him, to keep an eye on her, her whole demeanor changes, and suddenly she's super friendly, and, and super willing to, to be helped by this guy. So, again, more evidence for the whole weird dynamic that those two have, but, you know, it's it's just kind of a, it, it's, it's just funny. Eventually, you will capture this castle. It might take you a while, um, but eventually you'll get Sigurd down there, and he will capture it, and now some story stuff happens. It cuts over to where Chagall is. Basically, Chagall just says, oh no, shit, what's going to happen? And Manfroy says, you should let Eldegon out because he might be able to help you. And, and he's like, yeah, sure. And that's not important. But what is important is what happens next. A guy shows up. It looks like Sandima, which is funny. They just reuse Sandima's portrait. But he's a different guy. And he says that he just bore witness to the assassination of Prince Kurth. And... Yeah, I mean, like, they just talked about how important it is that Kurth survives because he doesn't have any children. So, yeah, this is pretty. This is a pretty big deal. And it shows that Manfroy's behind it. I know that it was kind of implied last chapter that he was behind the assassination of the King of Isaac. Uh, but now they know for a fact that, yes, he is, in fact, responsible for the death of Kurth. The King of Isaac is still, like, the jury's still out on that one. But it's, it's at this point, it's pretty obvious, in my opinion. They talk a little bit about, and this is how I know that the whole Arvis thing wasn't supposed to be a mystery that they made obvious, because at this at this point, Manfroy reveals explicitly that uh, Arvis is Sijin's son, and that he is in fact in on the plan. With his reasoning, well, Manfroy speaks for him and says that Arvis, even someone of his station, could not be revealed as having Loptir blood, because they would just be killed. And that's, you know, that's a big deal. So that's kind of why Manfroy thinks he's in on it, but yeah, it's it's not a secret at this to the player. It's it's supposed to be explicit that Arvis knows what's going on and is helping actively to participate in it. I, I you know I get that they weren't trying to make it a mystery. I just think that it would have been more interesting if it was. Is all I was trying to say last time. There's this final approach where you fight Shigal, and that's not really interesting. That's like the easiest part of the chapter. 
And if all three of the green units survive, you get the Night Ring. And they, they resolved that a little bit. It was funny because at this point, my Lekesis was a Master Knight, so she didn't need it anymore. But I, they give it to her anyway. And hey, it's free money, I guess. So that's nice. And then there's just some dialogue about how Chagall actually survived and was pulled from the battlefield by someone. And Sigurd's like, who would do that? Chagall's a piece of shit loser. He doesn't say that, but that's the implication. And Eldegon shows up and says, it was me. I did it. I saved the piece of shit loser. And they have a little bit of an exchange where Eldegon actually seems kind of angry that um, Sigurd has captured all of Augustria, basically. And Sigurd, it was not all of it. It's like half of Augustria. And, um... You know, Sigurd acknowledges this and is like, hey, listen, I know you're mad and I get it. I do. But my hand was forced. They were all attacking us. Like, what was I supposed to do? Give me a year and I will be out of here. I'll be out of here for good. And Eldegon says, fine, I'll take you at your word. But if you disagree, he says something like, if you break your promise, I will break you, which is super. I mean, it's kind of lame when you say it out loud like that. But, you know, it's it's. These guys are like best friends, and it really goes to show how much Eldegon cares about his country, where he will fight, he will murk Sigurd, like right then and there, if he if he wanted to. And, I mean, Sigurd's strong, but Eldegon has Mistletane, and at this point, Sigurd does not have Tearfing, so Eldegon would most definitely win that fight. But, yeah, it's, it's cool. It characterizes him very well. It characterizes Sigurd well, too, because he's completely understanding. Like, he doesn't get defensive about it at all. He's like, listen, I, I get it. I don't want to be here either, but it's just I didn't have a choice, and I'm sorry. So they kind of work that out, and Sigurd has a year to organize things in a way that uh, Augustria will be given back to Chagall. And that's the end of the chapter. So... I guess we'll talk about the kids first because I wanted to I wanted to put this off to the end because I know that it's not something that everyone's interested in right now and it could be something that I could talk more about in the Gen 2 chapters. So uh, if you want to skip over this part and go straight to the map gauntlet, feel free. So we get three parable moms this chapter. I also think that it helps it flow better if I just talk about them all at once. We get three parable moms this chapter. We get Lachesis, Sylvia, and Aaron. Lachesis is the mother of uh, Dermot, or Diarmud, and Nana, who is a major character in FE5. Um, in terms of who makes their kids best, there's really no two ways about it. It's Beowulf, by a, a country mile. The only one that even comes close is Claude, if you want Nana to have uh, rescue utility, like at base. Which you can do, but I don't think you actually get the rescue staff by doing that because you need to marry no okay yeah if you marry azel if you marry azel to adine and then you marry claude to lachesis you can get the rescue staff from adine onto lachesis and then nana can use it that's pretty convoluted and it's azel and adine is a terrible terrible pairing that you should never do even though the game kind of hints that it it's like worthwhile but yeah it's it's beowulf for sure it gives dermot i keep calling him dermot because that's what i'm used to it gives diarmud crazy high strength growth and also pretty good growth and everything else i think it gives him a really high hp growth and it's just really good for him overall uh nana obviously doesn't get a whole lot out of it in terms of staff utility but she does if you want to make her a combat unit she actually turns into a pretty competent combat unit if you do this so that's pretty cool too if you want to if you want to do that if you want to take her that route 
Um, it's I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the lore here because there's kind of a shipping war going on narratively um, in the fan base between Beowulf and Finn with Lachesis because there's some evidence in both games that kind of implies one over the other. Finn in FE5 is talked about as being Nana's dad, but it also, it's talked about in such a way where he could be like an adoptive father. So there's no definitive answer there, but it is obviously an implication that maybe he's his he's her biological father. Diarmud uh, joins with an item called the Beo Sword, which for one thing kind of implies that maybe he inherited that from Beowulf, but also the Beo Sword, obviously the name referencing Beowulf, is only usable by two characters, uh, Fergus and Diarmud, which people have taken to mean, oh, maybe they're both his children. Maybe Fergus is also Beowulf's kid. It's also possible, though, again, there's an alternative explanation here where those two are the only knights in the game, or the only sword knights or free knights in FE5, and that's what class Beowulf was. So maybe it's just only people in his class can use it, which is why it's re it's referencing him in this game, in FE4, if you have Beowulf and Lachesis married, there's like a conversation that implies that she's been keeping some kind of secret from him, and he leaves as a result of it. So I think the general consensus, and this is this is my take on it too, is that uh, she marries Beowulf and um, has Diarmud with him, and then cheats on him with Finn and has Nana with Finn. That seems to be what the game's going for, and that's that's my opinion on it, but you know, it's there's there's room for interpretation on either side, and I really like that. I think it's interesting, but that has nothing to do gameplay wise. Gameplay wise, Finn gives them no benefit whatsoever. Uh, he gives them like miracle, I think, and uh, you know, well, I think um, either uh, um, because I know Diarmud has pursuit. I don't know if it's a class skill or if Beowulf passes it on to both of them. I, I genuinely don't remember, but both of them give pursuit and. Uh, Beowulf gives better swords to, to Diarmut and also gives him better growth rates. So there's actually something cute. And another factor in this debate is that um, Lachesis joins with the Miracle Sword, right? And obviously you can take it off of her. But theoretically, if you kept it on her, then married her to Beowulf, then it would pass down to Nana. And Nana would effectively have Pursuit and Miracle, which are the two skills that Finn would give her. I know it's not, like, mechanically, it's, you know, it's the sword that's doing it, but narratively, I think it's kind of interesting that, like, oh, is it the sword or is it Finn, you know? Like, obviously, there's not, that's not a whole lot of ground to stand on, but I don't know. I just think that that's cute if that was intentional. Aaron, I almost called her Fury because that's what she used to be called. Aaron, also known now as Aranus, she's gone through a lot of name changes. I don't know what the deal is, but Aaron is the, the mother of... Thee, who's another Pegasus Knight, and Sed, who's a Sage. Now, this is the only pairing that we actually know canonically who the father is. In FE5, Sed uses Forseti, the Tome, which is only possible if Lewin is his dad. So it has to be Lewin if you're looking at it canonically. Um, so if that's something that you care about, then go Lewin. I don't actually think Lewin's that good of a dad, not just because, first of all, the opportunity cost, there's another pairing that Lewin makes a great dad for, but also, like, yeah, he makes Sed really good, but also, Fee doesn't really get a whole lot of out of that, she gets Adept and a good speed growth, so she'll proc Adept a lot, but other than that, it's not 
that good for her. I mean, Fee's not great at combat anyway, but I always like to make my flyers good at combat through any means necessary, so unless they're just like complete lost causes. And, and Fee is definitely not a lost cause. She can definitely be made good at combat if you want her to be. So I actually prefer a few different pairings. The thing about this about this dynamic is that said is pretty much idiot proof. And to a certain extent, so is Fee, because she's always going to be a flyer. She's always going to be able to fly around and get villages and stuff. So both of the kids are pretty much golden, no matter who you make their dad. But they can be made better. But I think said is definitely the least... Uh, important one here because he is always going to be good at combat he has really good base speed and magic uh, magic is just good in this game in general because he uh, enemy resistance tends to be really low and yeah you can make him better you can give him better tomes and all that but generally I don't think it's all that necessary I think that my personal favorite pairing for for um for Aaron is actually Claude because uh, again Mounted Rescue Utility is really, really nice. Or really any Mounted Staff Utility at all. At all. Physic, Warp, um, Return. You know, there's a lot of things that you can benefit from by having a Flyer who can use those Stabs. And Claude, you know, gives her the opportunity to do that. It makes, and it also makes Sed good. And it passes, actually passes Sed down a Holy Weapon, which is um, Valkyria. Uh, it's not a Holy Weapon. It's the Holy Staff that can bring people back to life. But it's still a Holy Artifact, I guess. So I think that, that Claude is actually the best pairing for her overall. I also kind of like Lex just because it makes Fee really tanky and deal a lot of damage. But it doesn't give her any good weapons and it doesn't really give her any good utility. So I guess that's kind of that's kind of like a like a more niche pairing that you should really only do if you want to really lean into her combat, which generally is not the best idea um, for reasons I talked about earlier, but I like to do it, so sometimes I'll, I'll do the, the Lex pairing, and it, it works out okay. It gives her Paragon, too, which is nice. She'll, they're all, they'll both always get Pursuit, by the way, because Aaron passes down Pursuit. And then, you know, honestly, uh, I want to try out a meme build this time around. I thought about, I thought about uh, Alec, because Alec gives her Nile, which is a meme through and through, but basically it makes it so that she's not weak to arrows. But that's such a niche. I don't even think that that would be fun as a meme because all it would let her do is just like run into a group of archers, but her, she's pretty frail. So I don't think that she would last very long doing that anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that that's worth it. I thought about it. I decided against it. I think instead what I'm going to try is uh, Azel and 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 Aaron because it again, it makes it makes said pretty good, but it also uh, lets Fee have a niche with like magic swords. That's kind of cool. Um, she doesn't have the same staff utility. But, you know, it's, it's for me, again, this is just a meme build. I think if you want to make her, like, actually good, then Claude's more or less the only option if you want her to be, like, actually competent at or have, like, a good utility niche um, besides just flying villages. And if you want to make her good at combat, really any, like, Beowulf or Alec or Noish or um, honestly maybe even Arden, I don't know. Uh, Lex is my preferred choice because Paragon's really nice, but... I guess the other three give swords, so that's kind of nice too. And lances, actually, if you do, um, you could do Finn even if you want Holland. There's actually a few different choices you can go if you want to make her combat good. Um, but yeah, do whatever you want. And then Sylvia is kind of the least important one. I mean, she her her kids are Lean, who's another dancer, and uh, Corporal, who is a healer. Corporal barely matters at all. 
because he joins so late and is very underleveled, and he's not going to be doing all that much. If you make Claude his dad, he has Valkyria, which is a nice niche, I guess, but isn't going to be useful most of the time. But that doesn't make, like, Lean particularly good. And then, honestly, Lean's dad matters so little. These kids matter so little because Lean just wants stuff from her mom. She just wants money and, like, the knight and leg ring if you give them to Sylvia. And then, um, what's his face? Corpool is barely relevant at all. So, really just do whatever you want. I think I'm actually going to play, um, I'm going to not pair Sylvia this run. And I think I'm just going to, I'm going to get the substitutes. Because I never play with substitutes. And I think that, that Corpool and Charlo, or, uh, sorry, uh, Layla and Charlo are very interesting substitute characters. Uh, Layla joins with Charm, which is kind of cool. It's a niche, uh, but it's still it's still all right. And then um, Corporal actually joins with the Berserk Staff, which is kind of fun, and I, I want to play around with that a little bit. So, and I also just never use substitute characters. I've literally never done a run of this game where I haven't paired every single character. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna not pair Sylvia, and if she gets paired by accident, I'll just kill her off at like the end of chapter five or something. I don't know. Anyway, I think that that is it for characters and pairings and stuff like that so let's move on to our map gauntlet for the week and i don't think anyone's going to be surprised that this map is worse than prologue i think this is many people's worst map in the game um it's really really bad it's super slow and tedious there are annoying aspects to it uh castle approaches in this map are very obnoxious it's just not fun it's not a good map it took a lot out of me. It kind of drained me to play a little bit by the end. And part of that was my own like habits. Like I took a long time to grind people up and grind love points out and stuff like that. So that's my own problem. That's not really the game's fault, but you know, it's still a fact. And 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 even if you're not doing that, the map is still going to be tedious. Like I want to make that clear. It's not just my problem. It's just the way the map is designed. I think the more interesting question is which is worse between this map and chapter one. And I think it's a matter of what you prefer. I think that this chapter has more interesting moments, but I think it also is like the slogs are longer. Whereas that, you know, the chapter one never got fun. It was never fun. Um, but it did like the boring parts were pretty tame for the most part. And then the spirit forest was over pretty quickly. Whereas this, the boring parts drag on a lot longer, but there's also some fun aspects to it as well. So I don't know. I think I actually kind of prefer this one over chapter one, but it's by a very, very slim margin. I think they're both really bad maps. Um, and yeah, I'd, there's not really a whole lot else I have to say about it. Prologue's still the reigning champ. Next week is the first good map in the game and is honestly maybe my favorite map in the whole game. So I'm excited to talk about that. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy, and uh, I hope you had a happy holidays, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.